0: Today's reading is from Uses of the Erotic by Audre Lorde. As women, we need to examine the ways in which our world can be truly different. I am speaking here of the necessity for reassessing the quality of all aspects of our lives and our work, and how we can move toward them. The very word erotic comes from the Greek eros the personification of love in all its aspects, born of chaos and personifying creative power and harmony. When I speak of the erotic then, I speak of it as an assertion of the life force of women, of that creative energy empowered, the knowledge and use of which we are now reclaiming. In our language, our history, our dancing, our loving, our work, our lives. It is now my pleasure to introduce somebody who probably needs no uh, introduction. Most of you already know Amy Pemberton. She's been a member of UU since 1991 and a member of UUCL since 2017. Amy grew up in Louisville And has degrees from the California Institute of Technology, Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and Northern Kentucky University. Amy is very active in our choir and is on our streaming team making our services available online and also on the policies and procedures team and the nominating committee. Welcome please, Amy Pemberton.
1: Good morning. I've been a Unitarian Universalist for a little over 30 years. When you have been a UU for as long as I have, you will have been exposed to a wide range of beliefs and spiritual practices. Some of them pass by quite quickly. Some stick around for a while. Some take up permanent residence. As UUs, we have the freedom to be spiritual explorers. But with that freedom comes responsibility, the responsibility to engage carefully with sources and not just cherry pick a cool quote or a novel practice because it strikes our fancy. Over the past couple of years, we have engaged with one source through a song, All Shall Be Well, composed by Angela Salvagione, musician at the UU Church of Juliet, Illinois, We have been singing it to close the Joys and Concerns section of our service. This song, we have sung more Sundays than not, comes from the Revelation of Divine Love and 16 Showings by Julian of Norwich. As it happens, besides being Mother's Day, and I would like to wish a happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there, it is also the day that that the Episcopal Church celebrates and honors Julian. So it seems like a good time to talk about Julian and her context. So why have we been singing All Shall Be Well during a pandemic? (laughs) And who, and what was Julian getting at when she wrote it? Let's find out. Julian, most commonly known as St. Julian of Norwich, was a 14th century anchoress living in Norwich, England, a town about a hundred miles northeast of London. Stacey has told us a little about what an anchorite was. By Julian's time, an anchorite or an anchoress, which is a female term for anchorite, referred to somebody who lived in a small room or an anchor hold attached to a church. After a rigorous selection process, they would go through a ritual, kind of a funeral mass, after which they would enter the anchor hold and the door would be closed behind them and sealed. In theory, they were never supposed to leave it again. But they were not totally closed off from the world and other people. Their cell, their anchor hold, had at least three windows. There was one window into the church so that they could hear the services and receive communion. There was another window to allow a servant or servants to access, to provide for the anchorite's need. Please remember, there was no DoorDash, Amazon, or indoor plumbing in the 14th century. The third window was into the street where visitors could come seeking prayer and advice or even just company. Anchorites lived in cities and towns and were expected to serve their communities through prayer and counsel. In return, they received donations and in-kind support, such as food. As it turns out, we know very little about Julian herself. We don't even know her name. Anchorites tended to seek a certain amount of anonymity. The name Julian was taken from the name of the church where her anchor hole was located, St. Julian's in Norwich. We do know that she was born around 1343. We know this because she tells us that when she was 30 and one half years old, on May 8, 1373, at that time she fell ill, so ill that she and those around her thought that she was dying. A priest was called, and last rites were performed. As the priest lifted up the crucifix in front of her, she started having visions of the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. She she didn't die. She eventually recovered and actually lived for several decades longer. But as soon as she recovered, she started writing down her visions and reflecting on them. Now, if all she did was have visions of the crucifixion and write them down, we would probably not be talking about her here. But her visions and her subsequent reflections on them were published as the revelation of divine love. As Stacy told us, the revelation is the earliest surviving book written in English by a woman. She was a contemporary of Geoffrey Chaucer, and was writing at a time when English was first coming into its own as a literary language. And while the Revelation is a very different work than Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, it is a work of equal talent, and I would argue greater originality. Chaucer, after all, was stealing from Boccaccio for the most part. It was well-known during its time, the Revelation, but it disappeared from circulation during the English Reformation in the 16th century, only to be rediscovered and translated into modern English in the early 20th century. Today, Julian is recognized as an important mystic and theologian. Now, Julian lived at a time, through the time when that historian Barbara Tutman called the calamitous 14th century. I realize that y'all came here to hear a sermon on Julian Norwich and not a lecture on English history, so I'll just hit the highlights. The beginning of the 14th century coincided with a climatic cooling period known as the Little Ice Age. This climatic change had a catastrophic effect on agriculture culminating in the Great Famine of 1315 to 1317. This was about 30 years before Julian was born. The Great Famine ended a 200 year period of economic and population growth in England and the rest of Europe and caused massive religious and social disruption. And then just as Europe seemed to be recovering from the Great Famine, the Black Death hit. The bubonic plague reached Norwich in 1349, about the time that Julian Liu would have been around six years old. Conservatively, it killed about one-third of the population, and the current consensus is that the deaths were concentrated in the lower classes. The plague recurred every few, few decades until the late 18th century, so about the time that America was founded. The recurrence in 1361 to 62 was called the Children's Plague. It killed about 20% of the population and disproportionately affected infants, children, and young men. About the time of the Children's Plague, Julian would have been a young woman, about 18, and possibly married and a mo- mother. On top of mass death and social upheaval, there was also religious unrest. The church was a source of salvation for everyone, and it was powerless in the face of famine and plague. It was also corrupt and deeply involved in politics, vying for control with the various powers in Europe. For the first half of Julian's life, the papacy was in Avignon, France, under the control of the French king. For the second half there was a schism with as many people claiming as many as three people claiming the title of pope at any one time. Common people like Julian would have left in fear for their eternal souls and spiritually adrift. This led to the rise of reform movements such as the Proto Protestant Wallards. Groups such as these threatened both church and state authorities and so were ruthlessly prosecuted. Famine, plague, and religious unrest fed into social unrest. And on top of this, the population was also being very heavily taxed to pay for the Hundred Years' War, a series of conflicts fought between England and France over the French throne. Between deaths from the plague and continuous conscription to find soldiers to fight France, there were severe labor shortages in England. Peasants and serfs agitated for freedom, higher wages, and better working conditions, and landlords attempted to hold the line. Tensions exploded in 1381, when an army of peasants marched across southern England and attached London, destroying government property and killing anyone associated with royal government. Eventually, the 14-year-old king, Richard II, was able to gather an army and put down the rebellion. Later, Richard II ended up in conflict with his nobles, including his many royal cousins. The conflict reached a crisis point in 1399, about 15 years before Julian's death, when Richard banished his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, from the country. Henry returned from exile with an army and usurped Richard, becoming Henry IV. Henry IV faced ongoing rebellion during his reign. Turns out when you usurp a king, it tends to give other people ideas, especially if the other people have as much royal blood and as much a claim to the throne as you do. So the 14th century was a time of famine, pestilence, war, attempted conquest, and religious and social and political unrest. A time which bears an uncomfortable resemblance to our own, to be honest. As my whirlwind tour of the 14th century England has shown, Julian was living in very turbulent times. All was not well. And the art of writing and writing of Julian's time reflected this. Most of it was dark and pessimistic. But in the face of death, suffering, religious turmoil, and political strife, Julian insisted, all shall be well. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in this life, but it will happen. 600 years on, what does Julian have to teach us? I'll be honest, when I first read the Revelation of Divine Love, I was initially put off by her visions. They contain pretty graphic descriptions of Jesus' crucifixion. Now... Let's remember, Gillian would have been surrounded by images of the crucifixion. People had crucifixes up in their houses and in public, and there were murals on, the chur- on their church walls reflecting, you know, crucifixion and the suffering of Jesus. And she would have also been familiar with the reality of death. Remember, she was six years old when, when the, the Black Death reached her town gave her a visceral familiarity with death in ways most of us really don't have, unless we're in the, the medical profession. I think of Julian's visions as what UU pagan blogger John Beckett would have called unverified personal gnosis, or UPG. That, that's a term for real experience for the individual, for Julian but not an experience that anybody else would have had direct access to. She even admits at one point that, that no one else in her sick room saw or experienced anything out of the ordinary, to the point that her, she almost dismissed her visions as a delirium. Now, there's a few ways you can respond to unverified personal gnosis. You can ward it over others. It's, look at me, I'm enlightened, I'm I had this wonderful experience." You can also spend your time trying to convince others that they need to accept your, your UPG is valid for them and not just for you. Or you can do what Julian did. Reflect on it by yourself or with the help of others, and then use what you've learned for the betterment of all. Her reflections are a living, breathing, joyous engagement with the world around her. She feels free to set the church's teachings, especially about hell and salvation, alongside what she knows from her visions and experience, that all shall be well, in a way, and she does this in a way that provides inspiration and hope, then and now. Now, there is an ongoing discussion about whether Julian was a universalist. That is, the, the, did she believe that everybody would be saved? or only some. If she was a universalist, it would have been dangerous to say so outright. And again, she, in her writing, she frequently you know, emphasizes that, well, yes, I believe what the Church teaches about hell and salvation, but all shall be well. Yeah. <laughs> You know, universalism was a, considered a heresy, and this was also a time where the church was feeling, the Catholic church was feeling very touchy about its prerogative, its monopoly on salvation. And it and a teaching like Julian's challenged that. But the reason I believe that Julian was a Universalist is the God she describes his too much love for creation to eternally condemn any of it. For example, Julian tells us in one vision, Jesus showed me a little thing the size of a hazelnut in the palm of my hand. It was round as a ball. I looked at it with the eye of my understanding and thought, what can this be? And and it was answered in general terms in this fashion thus, it is everything that is made. I marveled how this could be, for it seemed to me that it might suddenly fall into nothingness, for it was so small. An answer was given to my understanding. It lasts, and ever shall last, because God loves it. But for Julian, God's love is not a disinterested, detached love. She uses a few images of love, one being the secular court love poetry of her time, the equivalent of romance novels. The other image of love she uses is maternal love. Julian is best known today as the premier theologian of the motherhood of God. For Julian, God is our mother in nature and our substantial nature. In him we are grounded and rooted, and he is our mother in mercy, in our sensuality, by taking flesh, by coming down to be with us. This isn't God taking on maternal attributes. God is our mother, with all that entails. God loves us as a mother loves a child and wants to be close to us. He wants to bear our pains. Julian is also playing with God's gender. He is a mother. Motherhood for Julian is good and godlike and something we all have access to. You may not believe in God, but you can embrace love, if not as a divine thing, then as, a pers- as the personifying creative power and harmony of Audre Lorde's erotic. For Julian and Audre Lord. Love is not abstract or detached, but embodied and engaged, like the prayer that Stacey showed us. This engagement requires a willingness to sit with tension, specifically the tension between what is and what can be. I think of the tension created during the Nehemiah action last week. 2,000 of us created tension and held it lovingly, so that we could inspire the leaders of Lexington to create positive change for all the citizens of this town. In Julian's writings, we see this creative tension at work. Now, Julian lived in a hard time and a hard place, and yet she declared, all will be well, and all will be well, and every manner of thing will be well. Juliana was not Pollyannish or naive. At times, she even questioned God about how all could possibly be made well. Julian can affirm that all will be well because she recognizes the ultimate insubstantiality of evil. Sin, as she would call it. She says sin is no thing, nothing. She sees that God does not focus on evil, and neither should we. Yes, I follow the news. Sometimes, especially last week, I followed it too closely. It is easy, too, too easy, to get caught up in what some politician says or what some troublemaking nincompoop tweets. Yes. (laughs) Yes. We have social media, unlike Julian. But it may not have been that much different for her. I imagine she had all sorts showing up at her window, eager to share the news. Rules for anchorites warned against getting caught up in gossip, so it must have been a problem. It is very easy to focus on all that is wrong, all that is evil in this world. It seems to be an evolutionary trait that allowed us to escape danger, this sensitivity to what is wrong around us. It's a good feature if you're trying to avoid saber-toothed tigers. It's not so good when it's exploited by social media to keep you clicking. There are those in power who want us to despair, to get distracted by sideshows from what is really important. It takes commitment to filter out those distractions and to be self-aware enough to know you're getting caught up in someone else's drama. I haven't mastered it. Julian calls us to focus on the good, the good in the world, the good in creation, the good in people. She reminds us to focus on what you do want, not what you don't. Give your attention and energy to the world you would like to see emerge. Then eventually, in time, all will be well. We will make it so. Blessed be and amen.